My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab with the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week's guest is Dr. Gail Mendel, a senior scientist at the Volum Institute and a professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at the Oregon Health and Science University, as well as the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. So thanks for joining us today, Professor Mendel. My pleasure. So your path to becoming a neuroscientist has been quite interesting. You did your graduate work in immunology at UCLA, and then you did three different postdocs, first in biochemistry, then in bacterial genetics, and the third in the molecular biology of the polyomavirus. Uh-huh. So this kind of leaves me with two feelings. First, I'm incredibly impressed with your incredibly diverse background. And then as a postdoc, I am terrified and <laughs> hope that I don't have to do three postdocs. So could you just tell me a little bit more about how, how it evolved? Did you want to do three postdocs? What was it like in your life at that time? And Okay, so part of the reason for doing three postdocs is practical because my husband is also a scientist and he's three years older than I am. Mm -hmm. And so it took a while to coordinate our careers. Mm -hmm. So I met my husband when I was an undergraduate at UCLA and uh, he was a graduate student. Hmm. Actually, he was my TA. Oh, scandalous. <laughs> <laughs> Which would probably never be allowed now. Yeah. Anyway, then when we started going out, I graduated from UCLA and he was still in graduate school, so I didn't want to leave. So I decided to be a graduate student, obviously, at UCLA. And what happened was I knew the person who was going to be my thesis advisor. He taught developmental biology, and I really liked him, and he made the class interesting. And so I thought he would be a good graduate student mentor, and I was undifferentiated. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so that's how I ended up in a cellular immunology lab. And I had a good experience there. Being a student was kind of different then. The mentors really didn't do very much. So you kind of entered your lab and they said, what do you want to do? And then they would kind of meet with you once in a while. But basically, you were totally on your own from the beginning. And the labs weren't huge then. So it wasn't like you had a whole team that you could get together with. You kind of had to develop everything on your own. So at the end of my thesis, I think I was a, I graduated in four and a half years, something like that. Wow. My first project actually was to try to isolate the T-cell receptor, which wasn't identified for another 20 years. So <laughs> I would have been a graduate student for a really long time. But after about three and a half years, because um, there was no cloning then either. So I was trying to buy anti-idiotypic antibodies, which is another story. But anyway, I, I saw the writing on the wall. I wasn't getting any closer. And so I had to think of another easier project. But I was kind of frustrated because I felt like the science I was doing was more descriptive than mechanistic. So then while I was in graduate school, my husband finished his PhD. So he started a postdoc at UCLA to wait for me. <laughs> so then I graduated and he had started his postdoc. So I had to do a short postdoc there before we could both move for me to do a real postdoc. So I wanted something more mechanistic. So I worked with Bill Wickner, who is a biochemist uh, studying bacteriophage. And we were among the first wave of scientists to show how proteins got into membranes by a leader sequence. It was really a fun time. So when you finished that postdoc, do you and your husband take turns leading? <laughs> well, okay, so when he finished his postdoc, I had been a postdoc for about a little over a year and a half. And so I wasn't quite ready to get a job yet. So we both left UCLA. He went to the Salk Institute and I went to UCSD to do another postdoc. Mm -hmm. And I stayed kind of in the field of bacteriophage and started to learn genetics, bacterial genetics. 
and molecular biology. And that's when the first DNA sequencing was happening. So I was really excited by that. And then my husband finished his postdoc and got a job in Boston. So I stayed for another, I think my postdoc in San Diego was two years, maybe two and a half years. And then I moved to Boston because my husband had a job there. But I was so excited about sequencing and cloning was just starting that I wanted to switch to get more experience in that before I got a position. My position at Harvard was really not a postdoc. It was kind of an instructor position. So I was pretty independent, but I was in somebody's lab. And that's when I decided for what I wanted to do was to apply these new techniques of sequencing and cloning to the nervous system. So there was no field of molecular neurobiology at that point at all. So I was kind of in the first wave of the first molecular neurobiologists. So do you remember particular talks or or papers or things that you read that made you think about that? When I was at UCLA as a graduate student, we had to TA four years, all four years. And you still graduated in four and a half years. Yes, you had to teach all four years. And you walk uphill both ways to campus. And I was going to (laughs) say, I couldn't say it was through the snow because it was in L.A. (laughs) So, um, no, I had a blast at UCLA. It's a great place to do graduate work. We had um, intramural teams for every season. So there was intramural football, intramural softball, intramural water polo. I mean, it was a blast. And I did it all four years. It was really fun with the faculty, too. So it was all mixed. And um, all the faculty in the Molecular Biology Institute knew all the graduate students. It was really a nice environment. Anyway, what did ITA? ITA in animal physiology, which was basically electrophysiology. There was no molecular biology. So I knew a lot about the nervous system from a functional point of view because I had TA'd this class for four years. So when I learned how to do cloning and sequencing, it just seemed like the field of neurobiology was wide open to apply those techniques to the classic question of how the action potential is controlled in the nervous system. So physiology at that point was all about electrical excitability and action potential. And the first cloning in neuroscience almost was ion channels and receptors. That's what physiology was then. So it was kind of natural for me. And also my husband's a physiologist. He's a synaptic physiologist. So it was something we could talk about. And it was hard for me to explain the excitement in the idea of elucidating the primary structure of an ion channel. But back then... Yeah, it was a big deal. That was a big deal. And it was a big question. And there were several labs that were competing. Of course, NUMA, the late NUMA. But uh, there was plenty for everybody to do. So it was a niche. So you started your faculty position looking at the molecular biology of neuroscience around what time? (laughs) Let's see. I got my PhD in 77. And I left San Diego in 81. So I would say 84, 1984. So short graduate work, but a long path to being an investigator. Yeah. So we usually ask this at the end in a sort of short answer format. But I think given the discussion, it's more relevant to ask it now. If you had to go back in time and give yourself advice as a graduate student, uh, what would you tell yourself? What would I have done differently, you mean? No, what advice would you have given yourself? Huh, that's a tough one. Because I'm sort of happy with what <laughs> Well, it, it, things are obviously turned out very well for you. The thing is, it was different back then, really. First of all, you had to be really independent early. Second of all, we had no expectations of ever 
making any money. We never had any expectations we wouldn't get a job. Hmm. It was a really wonderful time in a way because we were in the lab 24-7. We loved being there. We had a great time outside the lab as a group of people. There was no pressure to really focus so early then. You know, that's why I could have all these different experiences because there was just not that same kind of pressure there is now. It never entered my mind that I wouldn't be able to find a job doing what I wanted (laughs) to do. You know, it's funny, of course, we didn't have computers. So when we would type a paper, we might have to type a paper 20 times. The secretaries would like kill us because you know, you can only white out so much and then you have to start over again. So you start passing your paper back and forth and you end up having to retype it like 20 times. It's a totally different thing. But it's kind of like what we expected. Right. It was all going to work out. And like I said, we didn't ever expect to make any money. So I'm just like shocked at how much money I make for doing (laughs) what I have to do. So I don't think I really would have changed very much, honestly. Okay. Well, let's start talking about some science. Okay. So in 1995, you discovered a transcription factor called REST. Yes. And you show that REST acts as a repressor that silences the transcription of type 2 voltage-dependent sodium channels in a tissue-specific way. So it changes the membrane excitability to neurons within the CNS. Could you talk a little bit about what REST does and why this kind of activity is really important for the development and the function of the nervous system? Yeah. So after I cloned the sodium channel, I had to kind of make a decision. I could do structure function on the clones, but I'm not a physiologist really at all. Or I could try to figure out why a particular sodium channel was expressed just in the nervous system. And my reasoning was because the sodium channel is so fundamental to a neuron, if I understood what regulated expression of the sodium channel, that would lead to a broader understanding of what regulates neuronal phenotype in general. And that's what turned out kind of to be true. So the surprise was that it was negative regulation and not positive regulation that restricted the sodium channel to neurons. So there was a repressor outside the nervous system, which kept the gene off. And it was the lack of this repressor in the nervous system as if being in the brain was a default pathway. So that was the first surprise. Because up till that point, gene expression had been thought to be regulated primarily by positively acting factors. So everybody was thinking there would be a positively acting transcription factor that was missing outside the nervous system. It was just the opposite. So that was one surprise. And then the other surprise was that so many of the genes that confer the neuronal phenotype as a constellation had a binding site for rest. So these genes encoded proteins that had nothing to do with one another, neurosecretory genes, growth factor genes, growth factor receptors, cytoskeletal elements. They don't interact, but they all have somewhere in their gene a binding site for this repressor. So that says that there has to be some kind of coordination where the progenitors get to a certain point and then this break has to be relieved. So the idea is that in a way it rest times terminal differentiation. So there was a lot known about the early stages of neuronal differentiation, but not very much known about that terminal step. Mm-hmm. A lot of your work has focused on how voltage-dependent sodium channels are regulated, as we were just talking about, and uh, how their expression or repression help shape identity. But what is so unique about sodium channels as opposed to potassium or calcium channels that makes them so influential in this regard to determining selfie? Well, most of the signaling in the brain requires action potentials. And in mammals, that's almost always due to the sodium channel. So you can't have an action potential without... But you couldn't have vesicle release without calcium. Yeah. Well, and those proteins are all regulated by rest too. Mm-hmm. So that was what I was saying. I see. Because sodium channels are fundamental, I thought that whatever we learned about sodium channels is going to apply to all of these other 
essential proteins for what makes a neuron. That was precisely my reasoning. So sodium channels was the hook to let you to see the larger network. That's right. So a couple of years ago, your lab has started studying the molecular mechanisms that underlie Rett syndrome, which is an X chromosome linked autism spectrum disorder caused by a loss of function of the transcription factor methyl CPG binding protein 2 or MECP2. So first off, could you just explain what uh, Rett syndrome is for, for people who aren't familiar? Sure. So Rett syndrome is a disorder of girls, largely girls, and it's due to uh, bad luck. It's due to sporadic mutations in this gene encoding MECP2. And because of dosage compensation in mammals, you only get the mutation in one of the two X chromosomes because it's carried on the X chromosome. So in females, because of dosage compensation, you either inactivate a wild-type allele or a mutant allele. So girls are a mosaic. Half their cells approximately are mutant, and the other half are wild-type because of X inactivation. Males, as you know, only one X chromosome. So if they get the mutation, they have a much more severe form of the disease. They're not mosaic. All their cells are defective. So they normally die right after birth. Hmm. So that's why it's considered a disease of girls, because they're the ones that survive. Gotcha. And uh, they usually survive to about age 40, although some can live a normal lifetime. And MECP2 is expressed everywhere. It's a ubiquitous protein, but it's one of these diseases where the phenotype is largely neurological. Right. So in that vein, most people assumed or originally believed that because they're kind of neuron-centric, that it was going to be something about the, the function of, of this protein in neurons that was giving rise to this neurological disease. But in 2011, you published a really interesting paper where using mice that were entirely deficient in MCP2, you re-expressed the gene exclusively in astrocytes. And in doing so, you were able to rescue many of the phenotypes caused by the loss of this gene. So could you describe maybe in a little more detail of what you found? And in particular, why did you decide that this was a reasonable thing to look at? Yeah. So my lab, as we've talked about, has studied repressors for a really long time. And when I entered the field, MECP2 was thought to be a repressor because it binds to methylated cytosines in CG dinucleotides, and those are associated with gene silencing. So the idea was that MECP2 interprets the methylation signal and represses genes. And what intrigued me was that often when we did chromatin IP for rest on genes, we would often see MECP2 on the same genes with rest. So I originally, and I didn't know much about MECP2, so I started reading about it and found out it was a repressor. And I thought, oh, well, maybe part of the neurological defect is due somehow to this association between rest and MECP2. That's why I decided to continue to study it. But that hypothesis turned out to be completely wrong. But in the meantime, I was sort of captivated. As I learned more about the disease, I became captivated by it. And one thing that captivated me was if it's a ubiquitous protein, why would it be excluded from glia? So the dogma was that the disease was due strictly to loss of MECP2 from neurons because MECP2 wasn't present in glia. And I thought, hmm, that's strange. And what was the evidence that it wasn't present in glia? So the evidence, as you'll hear when I'm there, okay. <laughs> there's some genetic evidence. There was manipulation of MECP2 in neurons in different ways. And then primarily immunohistochemistry, showing that they could detect MECP2 epitopes in neurons, but mm -hmm. not in uh, astrocytes, for example. So we decided we'd make our own antibodies and then repeat the immunohistochemistry and also take a biochemical approach and do Westerns and 
on purified populations. And so we found MECP2 in all the different glial types. So then that raised the question of, is it doing anything in the glia? And that's what led us to do these genetic tests where we took it away or put it back. That is not to say, I am not saying that MECP2 in neurons isn't important. Sure. It's hugely important. We're just suggesting that the astrocytes play a role in the progression of the disease and that if you fix the astrocytes, you delay the progression of the disease significantly. So were you surprised that you saw such a large effect in the rescue? And how has the rest of the field responded? Badly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not really. um, You know, it was funny. The paper was almost two years in review, actually. It went through several rounds of review. And um, there were some well-founded suspicions, I would say, because the promoter that we use for the GFAP gene is expressed in astrocytes, but astrocytes are also neuroprogenitors, and they give rise to both glia and neurons. And even though we had an inducible promoter so that we could turn on CRE in the adult, there's still adult neurogenesis. And so there was a lot of concern that we were getting re-expression in neurons, and that's what was giving some of the rescue that we were seeing. So the funny thing was, we did the histology here with different people in the lab, and then we have a collaborator in Stony Brook, and we sent her blinded sections to look in the areas of adult neurogenesis, and we just didn't see a lot of evidence for any progeny that were neurons. And I think the reason is adult neurogenesis is hampered in a RET background for reasons we don't understand, but other people now have noticed that too. So that was one concern, and that was a legitimate one by the reviewers, I think. Well, then the funny thing was at the beginning, the reviewers didn't believe anything about the paper. So then we did all these experiments lots more histology, more behavior. They wanted us to show biochemically that we were actually getting recombination, not just by immuno showing re-expression of MECP2. So we worked out a way to sort the cells and then do PCR on the sorted cells. And we showed that the recombination efficiency exactly matched what we saw by immuno. And that is with different people doing it. So we did all of that. And, you know, two years later, then Two of the three reviewers said, well, we don't think we should take the paper because everybody knows that glia affect disease. <laughs> so now it's obvious. Right. First it's wrong, then it's obvious. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everybody was surprised, but not surprised. I, I, don't, I don't really know how to explain that psychology, but it's we were a- surprised anyway and um, skeptical, and we kept trying to disprove it. But anyway, that's what we got. Well, I guess that you've already given us a bit of some background on what you plan to talk about, but could you maybe summarize it a little more shortly, a, a brief teaser about what you plan your, your lecture to be about here at Stanford? Oh, yeah. I'm going to have fun with this seminar. So the first part of the seminar is going to be more details about what you and I have talked about. Uh, I probably won't have time, actually, to go into the link between rest and why I got interested in this. Maybe I will, maybe I won't, but I'll go through some of the experiments that we did in more detail. But then the second half is going to be new. And one thing I'm going to talk about is experiments that we've been doing with close consultation with Steve Smith. And that is that we've applied array tomography to look at chromosome changes in the nucleus in RET nuclei versus wild-type nuclei. Steve isn't in the least interested in this because (laughs) it's the nucleus and not a synapse. But I should say, we still don't know what MECP2 does. So it started out as a repressor. Now half the field thinks it's an activator, not a repressor. And 
there are not very many significant gene expression changes in the absence of MECP2. So that's kind of perplexing too, whether it's a repressor or an activator. So we're thinking maybe to take a completely different approach, not rely on RNA-seq and seq-seq and all that stuff, and look at what's happening, if we can, to the nuclear structure and compartments in the nucleus. Could MECP2 be changing the conformation of the chromatin in such a way that it's subtly affecting gene expression? Maybe the levels actually are the same, but the location of the genes within the nucleus is different. and Yeah, I will say the postdoc, another postdoc, Gordon Wong and, and myself in the lab have often looked at the pattern of DAPI staining amongst all these cells and, you know, like, oh, these don't all look the same. I mean, they definitely look different. You can almost genotype the nuclei in a female ret mouse. You can almost genotype the wild type and the mutant cells by looking at the heterochromin. Hmm. That's what I'm going to show. It's really cool. Uh, if I have time, then I'm going to talk about some gene therapy we've been doing where we try to use a virus to introduce MECP2 back into mice and look at their recovery that way. Well, in closing, like I alluded to, we like to have a kind of a, some shorter rapid fire questions to end the interview. So Stuart Firestein has argued that science is driven more by ignorance than it is by knowledge and that what we don't know is more important than what we do know. So What's the most important thing that you don't know? With respect to RET, the most important thing we don't know is what MECP2 does. I still have no idea. Mm -hmm. And I think that's driving the field because it's hard to understand, to work back from the phenotype if you don't know what the defective gene normally does. Yeah. yeah. So I think that question is driving the field right now. And if I were to ask you what the first experiment that you ever did was, what pops into your mind? <laughs> The first experiment I ever did was to try to ask what the uh, structure of the TTX-insensitive sodium channel was in animals which make tetrodotoxin, like pufferfish. Oh, huh. <laughs> That's an interesting question. <laughs> well, because I was an instructor in the neurobiology course at MBL. Oh, I've done that. <laughs> yeah, but you did it when they were doing mammalian cells, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when I did it, it was all in vertebrate. There was no mammalian. There wasn't a tissue culture incubator there. So we had to use whatever floated up on the dock. <laughs> so those were among my first, when I think about my early experiments. I mean, I that came sort of after my graduate work, really. But those were really fun experiments. Well, thank you very much for speaking with us today, Dr. Mandel. Well, you're quite welcome. I'll see you soon. Yeah. And thank you all for listening. We'll hope you join us next week when our guest will be speaking of the neurobiology class, Graham Davis, a professor of biochemistry and biophysics at UC San Francisco and the current co-director of the neurobiology class at the Marine Biology Laboratory. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Uh, this episode was produced by Erica Senor and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuroblog.stanford.edu.